0: Our scripture reading today comes from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord.
1: It's a wonderful thing to be here on the second week of Easter. Many people do not fully understand the importance of this season. As Christians, sometimes we're tempted to think Christmas is one day, and Easter is another day, and, and then July 4th is the next one after that, and that we celebrate, and maybe Mother's Day is something that's very important in the church. These things are not bad to celebrate, but it's important to, to develop a rich understanding of what these seasons are and what they allow us to remember and participate in year by year as disciples of Christ. It's important for us to routinely revisit Things that we know about. Uh, it is not a mark of maturity to say, oh yes, I remember that story, or I've heard this before. Indeed, it's a mark of maturity to re-enter by God's grace into stories that you've already heard and revisit them in order to, by the Lord's help, uh, get, get something new and also apply it in a way. We as Christians must give attention to not simply be hearers and not doers as well. And so it's probably the case that if you've been a Christian for any uh, length of time, you've you've probably heard about this story where Jesus comes and enters into a room, and you you may be captivated by how he was able to get into the room, even though it was locked. But I want to look at just how important what he did in entering that room was for testifying about his power. And so, just as in advent, we anticipate the lord's coming, we anticipate the lord's kingdom in Christmas, we celebrate the inbreaking of light into a dark world by which uh, Mary, in her song that she says, is God himself raising up his horn of salvation uh just as after Christmas and the time in in Lent we remember Christ's earthly ministry and how it was unveiled but also in the time of Epiphany something happens uniquely in the time of Epiphany which is somewhat revisited in the season of Easter. That is the unveiling of the glory of God. Jesus made his glory manifest through his earthly ministry and the resurrection accounts are another way by which Christ is made manifest to his disciples. And so even as we're going to talk about just one passage in the book of John, we're going to very briefly touch on some other aspects of John's gospels and the other gospel writers' uh, accounts of the resurrection and how that was an unveiling of the power of Jesus Christ. It is not simply the fact that Jesus wanted to say that he was able to defeat death. There's something that he does in the midst of that that we're going to look at today, and that precisely is the commissioning of his disciples to continue on with the work that he himself began. And this is actually one of the major focuses or uh, arcs, narrative arcs in the Gospel of John. Jesus is wishing to send his disciples on a mission with the exact like nature and purpose that he himself had and came with. And something that's hard for us as Christians to understand, when Christ discusses this mission, he doesn't at all reference the cross, as we're going to see today. So when I say that Christ is sending you on the same mission that he himself came on, I do not mean that you will make an atonement for the sins of the world. That's not included. But as Paul does say, when Paul was given, warring against the, the evil that was coming against the church. He says, I fill up what is lacking in the measure of Christ's sufferings. And so just at the onset, I want to say that Paul is not saying that there is something insufficient in the atonement that he must reconcile or cover up. Christ paid for sin, he defeated the power of iniquity on the cross, declared it was finished, and that was sufficient. But when Paul says, I am filling up in my body what is lacking in the measure of Christ's sufferings, he's saying that has to be announced to the people in Asia Minor, the people in the surrounding area geographically, and the persecution which comes against Paul is a entering into the sufferings of Christ. And so do not hear this mission or commissioning today as Christ is inviting you to a just a life of ease by which you share the gospel and everyone loves it. Or you encourage somebody and everyone receives you. No, you are being invited into the like mission with like sufferings, and that is Christ's path for all of his disciples. There is no idea in Christ's ministry, nothing in the gospels could be construed to say that you are being invited to follow Christ, but not to follow in his mission and his sufferings. Brothers and sisters, it is a glorious calling that we are going to be exploring today. And it is worth everything. It's worth giving everything you have and suffering anything that should come your way in order to honor the Son of God. So, with that in mind, we're going to see the absolute victory of Christ as he breaks into this room that is locked. His ability to break down doors, not just literally, physically, is shown here that he not only defeats death, but he defeats everything that gets in his way. His presence being the very blessing and cause of peace for his disciples who are here found to be afraid, found to be terrified and uh, not wishing to go out because of the fear of the Jews. We're going to look at how his presence is still today a blessing to the disciples, us, namely you and I. The mission of God that Christ brings the disciples into, that'll be our central focus. And if you have a Bible, there should be one in the pew. If you don't have a Bible that you brought with you, uh, we're going to turn to John 17. So at some point, I would encourage you to, to turn there at, at uh, the middle of the the message. We're going to explore the, the disciples' doubt. Many many Christians call Thomas doubting Thomas. And I just want to say it's probably not a good idea to, to badmouth one of the faithful saints of old it's not just Thomas's doubt that we're going to explore. Every single one of them was, was doubting. Uh, and so Thomas is unfairly named. I think, I think if we called Thomas doubting Thomas, we should call them doubting Peter and doubting John, but he, they don't, we don't do that. Um, After looking at the the doubt, we're going to briefly, briefly at the end here, I'm going to give you an admonishment to deeply interact with the word. John, at the end of this reading today, gives a summary of why the gospels exist. And those gospels are the very agent by which we begin to understand and then uh, participate in that mission, which Christ is commissioning his disciples with. So at the very onset we see that this is the exact same day, this is the first day of the resurrection. This takes place in the evening after Jesus had appeared to Mary in the garden, after he had gone on, in Luke's account, the the walk with the two disciples who were leaving Jerusalem, going to a city called Emmaus, and then here at the evening, the disciples had regathered in Jerusalem, and uh it's not, it's not known whether they were in the upper room. Some theologians, some readers, some commentators believe they are in the upper room in which Christ had already been with the disciples. Some believe it's John's house. Some believe it's possibly Mary's house. There's, there's no telling where they are. Where they are is not that important, but it must be noticed that the doors are locked. The doors are locked for one reason. They do not believe that Christ's resurrection has conquered everything. And they are in fear and in hiding because they are afraid of the Jews. Now, it's important to understand why. The Jews were seeking to destroy the name and work of Christ. They had attempted to kill him, and we see little precursors of this in the Gospels. Perhaps you remember when Peter is being questioned by those who are outside of the temple complex. He's standing there, and some people are accusing him, and he lies to them because he was afraid of being arrested on on the same charges. And so the disciples are in fear of their life. They're in fear of their life, they're hiding in a room, the doors are locked, and they're afraid to go out. They fear persecution, but they don't understand the resurrection because Christ is one who is reversing death. And understanding his victory over the grave, applying to all of life, they should be bold but they do not yet believe. And so Christ comes in order to destroy their unbelief. It's not okay, as our world says today, our world admonishes to be open-minded, to be open to doubt, to be open to questioning. Christ has nothing to do with that spirit. He comes to demolish doubt and remove unbelief, and he makes himself manifest to his disciples in order to secure their faith. The power of persecution that the Jews would have been able to wrought against the disciples is the destruction of the body and the removing of life, but we serve a God who has defeated death. And so if anything, and especially the history of the early church bears this out, if anything, Christians should be fearless in the face of tyrants and in the face of persecution. We do not have any threat. Uh, the, the book of First John makes this plain. There's fear Uh, that's associated with, but perfect love being uh, cast out all fear because the fear is, is related to death and there is no more death after the resurrection. Yes, you and I, we do die physically, but we don't die forever. We die and we wait and then we're resurrected. This is a complete undoing of death. And verse 19, on that day, the first day of the week, the door is being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them. Now, I am totally fine with, and I would encourage faith-filled people to believe this, I think that Jesus simply appeared because he wanted to. That's the point of what's going on. It doesn't say in the text that Jesus very quietly, without anyone noticing, uh, took out his lock pick set and removed the lock and then entered to the room and then quietly, very quietly, locked it again. No, it says he appeared in the room because they were gathered. Now, they weren't gathered in faith. They weren't gathered in his name, like he says in Matthew 18, as we're going to briefly mention. He appears because of his own power. And that appearance testifies that not only can he not be held by the grave, he can't be held by locked doors. If he defeats death, an 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 enemy which none of us can defeat, surely nothing else can stop Christ. Nothing at all. There's nothing that can stop him, not even death. And so he enters into this room and it's proof of his vow that he will be present with his disciples. They're afraid. He knows they're afraid. As the good shepherd, he is coming to his sheep to rescue them from their fears. He's defeated death and now he's defeating unbelief and appearing to them in the midst of the room, which is locked and barred. He shows that he is really in control. The threat of violence that the Jews had has no control over Christ. He appears into the middle of the room and comes to encourage them. Christ's presence, of course, in the middle of the room destroys the fear that his disciples have. As he's defeated death, so also he is beginning to defeat unbelief. And he declares to them peace. And in that declaration, he believes his words will cause something to come to pass that his disciples, in hearing his word, his declaration of peace, that they will turn from unbelief and fear and turn to belief and peace. He declares that by words, and he expects those words to create a reality in his hearers, in his disciples, that they would not trust in their fears, not look to the persecution which was coming, but rather to put their trust in one who has defeated everything. And so in verse 19, at the end, it says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. At another point, he says uh, in the upper room discourse, I'm gonna give you my peace. I don't give it as the world gives, but rather I give it and it remains. That peace is a presence, which is accompanied by Jesus Christ himself. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now, at this point, we, we know Thomas, because we've already heard the reading, we know Thomas is not there. And I just want to highlight this idea for you that all of the disciples had the same evidence that Thomas wanted. And that evidence is not an evidence in which we set ourselves up as judges over the evidence over the historicity of the resurrection narratives, but rather it is an experiential evidence. Christ makes known his sufferings to them, and he also gives them a great grace in understanding that though he is resurrected, though he has taken on a body which apparently can move through any barrier that is established, he retains as a loving memory the the scars in his hands, his side, and his feet. And he retains it, as we see in the book of Revelation in the first few chapters, to be an eternal reminder for us as the lamb who was slain. The resurrection is not a gloss over of the cross. It is a fulfillment and a maturity of the cross by which the glory of Jesus Christ is made manifest. That's really the mission that Christ has. He manifests his glory and in so doing also shows us the heart of his father. So he shows the the scars in his hands and his sides. And then it says, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. I think it's important to see how John is recording this event. He is not saying that as soon as Christ appeared in their midst, then they were not afraid. Or that when he said, peace to be with you, then they were not afraid. But rather, when they saw the very surety of their salvation, of the fact that Christ lives even though he was dead, that it's not some other person, but it is the Lord, truly the Lord, then their hearts were set at peace. I think this is really the the essence of these resurrection narratives or resurrection recordings uh, in the Gospels. It's, It's important to see when the inbreaking of the revelation of who Jesus Christ is. And this is ultimately foundational really to the life of every Christian. If we look earlier in this same chapter in John, Mary does not recognize Christ, as we examined in our Easter message last year. She does not recognize Christ immediately. She finds a tomb that is open, empty, without the Lord's body, and then she sees a man who she presumes to be a gardener. As we examined last year, the reason she presumes him to be a gardener is he was probably doing things that were like a gardener does. In many of the pieces of art that uh, remember this event or interpret this event, he has either a hoe or a rake, and he's busy doing things. And we see that he's at work remaking the world. He's bringing about a new creation. But it's only when he declares her name that she recognizes the Lord. In the account which we looked at last year and, and probably will return to in, in a week or two, on the road to Emmaus, the disciples do not understand that, is, that it is Christ when he is explaining the scriptures to them. In no way am I saying that the, scripture, the scriptures should not be expounded on or, or to see the glory of Christ, but they, res, they recognize Christ in the breaking of bread. And here, It is not when he declares peace, but rather when he shows them that he was dead and yet lives. That is when they recognize the Lord. I think the resurrection narratives are written in such a way as to help us understand what are those key things without which we cannot understand Jesus Christ, not know him truly as he is. And so here we see that in the declaration of his scars being retained, even though he lives again, that is when the disciples recognize him for who he is. And so in this way, Jesus makes his glory manifest. This is kind of like, as I mentioned earlier, a redoing or another aspect of what we see in Epiphany. Christ is making himself known. It's a grace that he himself is giving his disciples in removing their doubt and showing himself to be there. So though he is not present in body, Christ promises to be and is present by the Spirit of God. He says this beforehand in the Upper Room Discourse, and then he does that very thing which he had promised to do in a giving of the Spirit. Christ's presence always destroys the work of Satan in us, or it should, and if it is not, you must question, are you really knowing Christ, or or have you invented a Christ of your own making? If Christ, in knowing Christ, in in seeking out him and pursuing him, if it is not removing unbelief, doubt, fears, etc., then you have still yet to take hold of the grace of God. Christ removes the doubt of his disciples in this room. He does this in order that we can be his body. He removes the fear in order that they would go on mission. It's not just uh, some sort of cleaning up program that Christ is doing for the disciples for their own life. He is removing doubt and unbelief in order that they would be witnesses and that they would be carriers of the mission. And so in repeating his greeting, Christ emphasized that this is the organizing principle. This is the foundation for those who would be messengers of his kingdom. We know from Paul's writings in in the book of Romans that the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. It's not issues of physical things only, but rather it is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. And the kingdom of God cannot be brought about. You cannot live in the kingdom of God. You cannot extend the kingdom of God's boundaries unless you operate in that righteousness, peace, and joy, which are in the Holy Spirit. And so Christ, in redeclaring the word peace, he emphasizes that they must have the peace of Christ reigning in their hearts. Unless they are ruled by Christ, they cannot live in and extend the kingdom of God. And so even as, as ambitious Christians, as Christians with redeemed ambitions, eager and zealous to share our faith with others, we have to be people who are ruled by the peace of Christ. It must reign in our hearts if we're to rightly testify of his kingdom. And so because Christ is reigning now, we do not fear anyone. Ultimately, what he is doing is not just setting the room right so they can pay attention. He is completely reorienting their response to the persecution which the Jews were threatening. The Jews sought to arrest anyone who was a follower, and he declares, don't pay attention to that fear, pay attention to peace. Let the peace reign in you. So as king over everything, Christ rules over everything, including the success of his mission. This is where the sovereignty of God is so important, especially as a believer who is seeking to testify of the gospel to those around him or her. You must understand that Christ is not just Lord over everyone. He's also Lord over the mission. You are not left up to your own in in fulfilling this mission, which Christ is about to declare to the disciples. He is ruling and you are an agent through which he rules. And so it's not up to you totally, but it is up to him finally. And so Christ reigns and he establishes peace and that peace is grounded on the fact that he is still in control. Jesus said to them again in verse 21, peace be with you. And then here is the commissioning, which is our focus today. As the father has sent me, I am also sending you. Christ sends the disciples in the same manner and with the same mission. This is a very important word. It's two letters long. It's it's not really a hard word to understand, and yet it's a very big word. He says, as the Father has sent me. As the Father means in the same manner, in the same style, with the same mission. As the Father has sent me, so also I am sending you. Christ is intending to say to his disciples, I want you to, to remember everything that I've done for you, And then I want you to emulate that and be my people in the earth doing something that I myself started and you will simply continue in. Christ says, as the father, in order to understand that these disciples, they're not orphans. They have a brother named Christ and they have a father, God. And so Jesus Christ in sending them is bringing them into a relationship removing the fear, establishing peace, and commissioning them with a high and noble calling. Indeed, the greatest possible calling, both in the world and in any possible sense, the calling to represent the Father of of all. Verse, uh, uh, Verse 8 in 1 John 3, this is describing why Christ came. We think when when we think why Christ came, we think to pay for sins on the cross. But brothers and sisters, in Christ's own testimony and the gospel writers and their epistles, that's not the focus. The focus is much greater than just the atonement. And that in no way is diminishing the work of the atonement, but rather expanding because it doesn't just include the paying of sins in order that we could be justified before God to go to heaven instead of going to hell. It also means practical salvation over the works of Satan now. Christ appeared in, uh, in 1 John 3.8. John tells us, the very same writer of this gospel, in his epistle to the church, he says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He did not appear so that you could remain affected by the works of the devil, but have a ticket that is some sort of fire insurance at the end of your life. Christ came to set you free. And he came to set you free in order that you might become part of his liberating army, which is going everywhere, accomplishing his mission in all places. So, what are the works of the devil? It's quite clear, we're given multiple lists, but sin essentially is the work of the devil. And under that category of sin, it includes lawlessness, the, ability, the the thought that I can decide my own life and no one can give me rules, whether it be the government or the systems of men or some philosophy or religion. I'm my own reigning king over my life. Self-directed ambition, that's a work of the devil. Lewdness. The, the culture at large which celebrates to a perverse level the the experience of sexual intimacy, uh, any of these things are works of the devil, anger, enmity with, between spouses, enmity between fathers and mothers and their children, uh, one of the greatest evils in our land an un unassailed, unfought against evil, which has persisted on our culture for almost 50 years, being the great national sin and iniquity of abortion, that's a work of the devil. Christ appeared to destroy those things. And so Christ appeared to destroy those things. And he says, as the father has sent me, I am also sending you. We ought to be doing those kind of things. How does Christ demolish the work of the devil? Okay, now we've understood that we are On the same mission, but how does it work? In the high priestly prayer, John 17, Christ identifies his work as speaking the words which God gave him and keeping them in and declaring the Father's name. And so this is where we're going to turn to John 17. If you have a copy of John 17, please uh, join along with me. As disciples, we are invited into the same mission to show forth the glory of the Father, to bring them into the life of God. And so this is our mission. It is nothing short of bringing someone into the very life of God. That is the fellowship among the Trinity to bring someone into that as we've been adopted by Christ, united to Christ. That is our mission, is to declare and to bring someone into the culture and the life of God. And that is the practical overcoming of real evil, not just theoretical evil, not just spiritual evil it includes that but it's so much more they're intimately linked this is part of Christ's mission john 17 in jesus declaring what he has done we're not going to look at the we're not going to look at every verse we're just going to look at some snapshots of what christ says he's already done now it's important as we begin this for you to remember john 17 is a prayer that jesus offers up to the father on the behalf of his disciples he tells us the purpose and this takes place before the cross. It takes place before the cross, but look at the past tense nature of these verses or these verbs. Verse three, Christ declares what eternal life is, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Verse four, a past tense verb, it's faithfully translated from the Greek in English as I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do the cross although it is the center of the atoning work of christ does not remove the the essential nature of his ministry and his teachings that he did in the three years prior to the cross it is important to understand that it's just a logical continuation Christ is always, through his ministry, through his miracles, is demonstrating the heart of the Father. I have accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then he begins to describe what that work is. Verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Christ gives us the very key to understanding this phrase, made known the name of the Father. That is that Christ was given words by the Father. He uttered those words and then lived in such a way as it was uh, in accordance with that teaching. And he brought them into that. He manifested or declared the name of the Father. And so declaring the name of the Father doesn't mean that we just go around and say to unbelievers, you know, there's this God and he's named Yahweh and we call him father. No, it includes that, but it also includes bringing people in through discipleship into the life of God. This is what Jesus is intending to do when he teaches them how to pray. The very beginning of the the prayer is that they've been adopted by Christ and therefore they can call Yahweh our father. And so this is what the gospel is. It's an announcement that God has reconciled the world to himself through Christ And that reconciliation being accomplished on the cross is now open to anyone who would turn to him. Verse six, I manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Verse eight, for I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you. Christ is essentially saying that the father has given him words to speak. Now that giving is taking place through the scriptures which were already written and through the Holy Spirit directly. He announces those words which have been written down in the gospels for us, for our benefit, for the life of the church. And then he utters those words and they, it says they have received them and have come to know in truth that you sent me. The utterance of the gospel, which is not faithful to Jesus Christ, that is uh, theologically correct and also correct in purity and motivation is no gospel at all. This is why the prosperity gospel movement and other heretical gospels, which are false Christs, are so important to understand and to war against lest they creep in and go undetected. Christ did, does not come to be your, to put it any other way would be less, uh, less respectful or, or true of what the prosperity gospel is. Christ does not come to be your sugar daddy. Christ does not come to bless you with things that you spend on yourself. Now, I am not saying that you can't enjoy the things God has given you, but God gives you things in order that you would steward them so as to create space for people to come and encounter God. Your, The whole almost cult of the prayer of Jabez that happened in the 90s and the 2000s. I love the prayer of Jabez, but so much of it was tainted with this whole, ah, the Lord's going to bless me and I'm going to be great and it's going to be fine. No, the Lord blesses you in order to establish a provision that, like Christ desired to spread his wings over... His poetic wings, over the the city of Jerusalem. He longed to gather them in. That's what you're given things for. Everything you have is a gift by Christ to send you on mission for you to use in order for you to glorify him and and use it for his service. And so this is what it means to go on mission with Christ, to be given the mission of Christ. Verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. So not only does Christ, by speaking the words of God, declare the name of the Father, which is telling them of his nature and his character and his glory and his love and his grace and his fierce wrath against sin and his intolerance against unforgiveness of your fellow brothers and sisters, all of these things in which Christ made manifest the name of the Father, it says that he also kept them in it. Now, brothers and sisters, you and I cannot keep our fellow brothers and sisters from sin in the way that Christ can, but we've been given the same mission, which is to continue to speak the words that the Father gave the Son. I have guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. This is kind of like a little asterisk when Jesus is saying, I did my job except for Judas because that was pre- predestined that he would turn away. And, um, and so Jesus is kind of qualifying that statement. But his perfection in ruling as the good shepherd is Ultimate. There is nothing that Christ lacks in his power to keep you from stumbling. And so even as Christ is sending us on mission, we hear this and we have to repent from our own compromise of permitting sin, which we believe we cannot overcome. Christ has kept them in the name which he made manifest. Verse 17 Christ then prays to his father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. You cannot declare the words of the father to anyone and not also be seeking to be sanctified. And Christ even even says this of himself, how much more we who are sinners... Christ being perfect, holy, wonderful, without any spot or blemish, amazing in all qualities, says, I sanctify myself for their sake. How much more ought we, be, uh, ought we to be pursuing the Father in prayer through the word of God, through admonishing one another? We ought to be sanctifying ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters and those who are still yet even coming. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The The manifestation of the name of the Father creates a new culture. It creates, really, the church. And this community of believers, this fellowship of love that is focused on self-giving and self-receiving sacrifice and reception— that gifting which takes place in the body in order to give glory to Christ creates an atmosphere which Christ says is love, that they would be in the very same love that the Father and the Son share. And so we're being brought into, according to Christ's high priestly prayer, we're being brought into a love which has existed forever in God himself. And that love creates a culture, it creates a community And that is what we ought to strive for in going on mission. Christ does this work through his church. And brothers and sisters, we have a high and noble calling. We do not exist on this planet to work for 60 years, store up a 401k, as much as I love my 401k, uh, and then die and be pensioners. That is not you, you do not exist on this planet to take up space, to eat food, experience things, and then one day die. You have been given a noble calling, which is the mission of God invading the world and taking it over after the sin of Adam. He has given you everything in Christ. And you ought to, if God's grace is at work in you, you ought to be asking the Father routinely in prayer, open up my eyes, why was I made? You were made not just to have fellowship with Christ. You were made to extend that fellowship to everyone you meet. Now, does this mean you go around witnessing to every person that you come across? You'd never even get out of the grocery store or even get out of your house if if this took place. But you must begin to examine your life. As a disciple, am I really following Christ this way? There is no class of disciple of Christ that doesn't include this sort of approach to life. It must become totalizing, it must affect every relationship. It must become the paradigm by which you think about the things you've been given, what you spend your money on, what you spend your time on. You were given a calling in Christ and that is the very same mission that he has, to destroy the work of the devil and to make manifest the name and nature of the Father. And so Christ brings us into this mission. My question to you is, are you taking this calling seriously? Is this the paradigm that you approach your life? Now, at this moment, we might be tempted to to despair saying, I don't have this on my radar. This isn't how I approach my life. If I'm honest with myself, I don't really think routinely about the things that I've been given and how I'm using them and what I'm spending my time on. Brothers and sisters, Christ has ample grace to bring about maturity in you. You do not have to consign yourself to staying immature. Christ is offering by his word, as what we're gonna see John says at the end of this chapter, so that you may believe and have true experiential life, which is knowing the son and the father who sent him. And so this is our calling and we must do what we can to by God's grace through the activity and and power of his spirit, examine our lives through this lens. Do you see God uh, making, uh, do you see making God known as the point of your life? That's a question that I I don't want you to answer out loud. And in fact, you truly can't even answer very quickly. Do you see making God known as the whole point of your life? Yes, you may be like me, a computer programmer. Perhaps you're an accountant. Perhaps you're someone who works landscaping. Perhaps you work in finance or you're a receptionist or a waiter or waitress. Whatever it is, that isn't your ultimate calling. Those are vocations. And even those vocations have to be done according to the epistles as unto the Lord. But you have been given everything in order to do one mission, and that is to make known the Father. And you cannot do that unless you are pursuing that knowledge yourself. And that is what God has given the church for. He's given the church to be a community of making known his name and bringing people into that life and then turning them again outward and going and getting others. And it's a virtuous repetition and a virtuous cycle. So let's move on to Thomas's doubt. Again, we we know that Thomas is not to be maligned here. We don't call him doubting Thomas as if it was some rare thing. All of the rest of the disciples at this point, even though they had heard from the women that Christ had been raised, they still were doubting and he declares himself to be Uh, shown as alive. Christ shows Thomas in order to demolish his doubt, and after revealing himself, he commands belief. Now, this is very foreign to most of us who have heard the American gospel, which is, would you like to try Christ? Would you like to add Christ onto your life? But We see in Acts 17 with, with Paul at Ephesus, he commands all people everywhere to repent and to have faith in his Son. He commands all people everywhere, which shows that it is a will or a volitional choice. If Christ commands belief, then I must either obey or disobey. Then that is not antithetical to believe or not believe. And this is where the popular notion today that that open-mindedness or just you know, kind of floating through life, never really understanding truth, or you have a truth and I have a truth, this kind of subjective notion of truth must be wholesale rejected. At its face, at the presuppositional level, you must reject and war against that false doctrine which says truth is just relative. It's you have your truth, I have my truth. You can believe that if it works for you. I, I believe this and it works well for me. We do not live in a pragmatic universe. God has established his truth, which is his son. That very word, which the father has declared, is truth embodied. He himself is truth. And so he then commands belief as after he gives the evidence, responding to the evidence is not neutral. You can't simply continue to disbelieve. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand Uh, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Christ says it in this way, do not disbelieve, but believe in both a negative prohibition against and a positive commendation towards or command towards in order to make clear and plain unbelief after encountering Christ is not a valid response. And so if we see that it is an act of the volition or an act of the person's will to believe, then what we must then say is, then how can anyone believe? And the answer is clear. One must be born again. You have to be born again by God, an act of the spirit of God, an act of God's grace. And yet at the same time, you must obey Christ. You must believe thomas is not as we mentioned he's not praised for his open-mindedness go through the gospels and look at any time that christ, try to find one where christ gives a commendation or rewards someone for doubting a little bit or not trusting that his word was true it, it you won't find one you don't have to take it doesn't take too long to know it's never the case that christ rewards his disciples for being pragmatic and and kind of reserved no, those who trust Christ and take him at his word are always honored. And those who do not, those who war against him are called faithless and doubting and hard in heart. We ought to be soft in heart and quick to believe. So let's go to the end here. John writes a summary statement about the nature and purpose of his book. This is a remembering back to the opening of his gospel in which he gives a, a little precursor and in, in the first chapter, which says that the gospel that he's writing is an introductory summary statement he gives, which is that those uh, who received Christ, he gave them the right and the power to become sons of God. And then here he's saying uh, at the tail end of the gospel, he's giving a summary statement about why he wrote it. In verse 30 of John 20, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And just really quickly here, I'm going to answer a common question that people have. You know, why does Luke record an event and why does John not record an event? Is John saying that didn't happen? No, that is just an omission. It is not a a rejection of what Luke is writing. So when you see these different accounts of the resurrection and there are certain details which are missing in the various gospels, the various recordings, it is not that gospel writer saying that that was untrue and here's my version of the events. It is simply an omission because, I don't know about you, uh, I have a, well, I have a phone over there. It, it can store millions of words in that phone. And uh, here at this time, through God's provision, they were able to write thousands of words and pages of of manuscripts and uh, uh, what we call autographs. They They did not have an unlimited supply of recording mechanisms. It was very costly, and God, by his grace, gave them the tools which were necessary to record his truth as God wished it to be recorded. And so John is simply saying, I didn't record everything. The glory of Christ cannot be captured. And Indeed, even if John had what we have now today with recording abilities, he still would not be able to be fully captured. The glory that Christ made manifest or the glory that Christ shown forth in his life and his ministry is greater than human observation. Even if we had infinite uh, storage mechanisms, we could never capture his person. And so John is just saying, I didn't record everything, but here's why I recorded what I did. Verse 31, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Again, over and over, John, again, John is reminding of what Jesus' mission is. It's the declaration of his name, his character, his attributes, the way that he operates, who he is in his person. That's what John intends to say by declaring his name. And so this is why John is writing these gospel accounts. These, these pages were given to you so that you could believe Just as we saw Thomas was given the same evidence that the rest of the disciples were given, and then he was commanded to believe, we have been given the testimony of Christ in the Gospels, and they were given to us so that we would believe. My question to you, if you have doubts still in the faith, which is totally okay when you're beginning to to approach Christ, is what are you doing about those doubts? Are you seeking to have them rooted out? Or are they still playing a part of your thinking process? Have you taken a hold of the grace of God in written form and sought it out in order that you may believe? That is why you've been given a Bible. You've been given a Bible. God has preserved his text throughout the centuries with great effort through various ways. Thousands, if not millions of saints have been involved in giving us this wonderful beautiful, precious gift. And it was given in order that we would have life in the name of Christ, that we would be able to see him in these scriptures, to receive that, to believe it, to receive it, and then to commune with Christ in it. It's given that you may believe and have life in his name. So Christians don't have any other message on this mission we have been given the word of God and it is that very word which is our mission. It's not popularity. uh, It's not popular mechanisms of improving your life. It's not steps to having a better marriage. It's not how to clean up your family. All of those are secondary causes which Christ does reign over. But the primary message is that there is sin which must be removed and that there is a life and a communion, a love which you are being brought into by Christ. That is what our mission is. It is not to just simply have nice leaves on a tree that's still dead. I have lots of wonderful trees that I am paying attention to and taking care of, very small trees. And I have this one tree that uh, I almost killed and if you ever want to see the pictures, I think I've mentioned this before, it's a wonderful sign of resurrection because through neglect, I let this tree almost completely die. And one of the things that you learn when you start to experience, you know, plants and horticulture and these things is leaves tell you information that's already too late to act on. When when a tree loses all its leaves, it's already dead. And yet, by God's grace, he allowed me to bring this little ficus back. to I mean, I didn't bring it back to life. It wasn't fully dead, but it looked completely dead. It had maybe a hundred leaves on it. They all withered, wilted, curled inwards, and then fell off. And three weeks later, after continuing to water it, it then got little buds here and there, which eventually broke and became leaves. And it's now thriving again, but it has major branches, which did not recover. And what I want to admonish you today is do not approach the scriptures like I neglected that tree. Some of us go from week to week neglecting the scriptures, and then we wonder why we are spiritually malnourished. We read the scriptures when the leaves have all fallen off and everything in our life looks dead. Just like a plant needs water every day or so and sunlight continually, you need the word of God as a pattern in your life. Whether you read it daily and you have a plan and you check things off on a grid, it doesn't matter. If you're, if you're not encountering the Word of God, if you're not in the Word of God routinely, you will die. It it is the case that you cannot be sustained just magically or spiritually. God God works through means and one of those means, according to John's gospel here, is that you would have life. And so what's the implication? If you don't encounter John's gospel, then you will not have life in his name. You've been given this Bible in order to have life in his name, and that is the very same thing as we saw in John 17 as the mission which you're being invited to participate in. You cannot stand on human wisdom, but you absolutely must proclaim the very words of God. So my admonishment to you today is do not neglect, but rather give yourself totally to the encountering and understanding of this book. It's my deepest desire that this idea of Christ's Active presence by his spirit would be a very source of joy and life for you. It says the disciples were glad when they saw Christ there. And Christ has promised to be present by his spirit, but also a means of God's grace is the scriptures. I would give you if if I could give you one thing that I experience in my life, it would probably be an active prayer life and a and the, the very real presence of God. But another thing, and it, you can't choose between them, would be a deep knowledge of the scriptures. My desire for you is that you would not continue to think, I don't really know what this says. Many Christians live their entire life as Christians, not really understanding. And, and I want you to come to the place, and I think it's God's desire that you come to the place, I really know what First and Second Kings are about. I really understand what Deuteronomy has to say. This is what we've been given. We've been given the grace of God in written form. And it's up to us to take it up and read. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty work and John's accurate recording of of the ministry, work, death, and resurrection of Christ. We pray, God, that you would remove from us complacency about the Christian life, that we would be given the grace of a, a gift from you which says, that we have a noble calling, and that we would, by your grace, operating in the power of your spirit, take up redeemed and godly ambition, that we would become mature in the word. We pray, God, for years of heart-moving study in your scriptures, not just the gospels, not just the epistles, but the old covenant, uh, the old covenant scriptures, the Pentateuch, the wisdom books, the historical books. Lord, we ask that you would make this alive to us and that in every place we would see the glory of your son and that in seeing it, we would be brought into that very life and love of the father and the son and that by your power, by your spirit, we would be able to bring others in. We thank you for this wonderful calling. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be faithful to that calling. We know that you are able to do these things in Jesus' mighty name, amen.